So, as Mike mentioned, it's a little bit of a change of pace from where we've been in the past number of weeks. And so in looking at preparing this sermon, I started to think that it might be nice over a period of time to step through the various chapters of Nehemiah. And so this morning we're going to do that, and we're just going to cover chapter 1, and then we'll pick up in 2 at another time and so on. Now this, if I mention Nehemiah to many of you in the business world or other places, you might think it's the go-to text for leadership or Christian leadership specifically, and that it's the primary model. And that is uh, true. There is truth to that. But today we're going to be examining the predecessor to those chapters and looking at chapter 1, which is going to immediately introduce Nehemiah in a way that you don't normally think of. And he's an empathetic member of God's people, and he's very spiritually grounded. And in later chapters this morning, or actually in later texts, we're going to see a properly ambitious leader. And when you get towards the middle of uh, the book of Nehemiah, you see that he's grounded both in faith as well as in bold and specific action. So let's step back and look at a little history of the Jewish people before we move into this. It's, it's a predecessor for how we get there. But before we do that, it is interesting to note that Ezra, before Nehemiah, Ezra and Nehemiah in many older transcripts are one book. In fact, in the Talmud, it refers to the book of Ezra, but not a separate book of Nehemiah. Greek translations of the Old Testament also treat Ezra and Nehemiah as one book. But it's a good idea to read them carefully as two books, realizing that they cover similar events in time and they point back and forth on issues that are key to the text. So, we won't start in Genesis today. We'll start in Exodus. But that doesn't mean we're going to go through every single piece. If you look at Exodus, God calls the nation of Israel from Egypt. The nation finally makes it to the border of the promised land, yet they falter, doubt God, his grace and power, resulting in God wandering them in the wilderness for a generation until the unfaithful are removed. Under Joshua, rather than Moses, God leads the people into the promised land. So they get there, uh, driving out the inhabitants. Israel is established. Saul, who a foot taller than everybody else, is essentially a man's man, and is placed as king. Saul repeats the failures and doubts the goodness of God and actually offers unholy sacrifices. David, who's initially forgot by his family, is brought in as the replacement, and under his rule, Israel thrives. So when David dies, Solomon takes control of Israel for a time, and it becomes a regional power, and it has very secure borders, so to speak. Um, They have a defined geography that's fairly hard. And eventually there's a split. Two kingdoms are created, and you have Israel and Judah. Much later, the Babylonians take over. Persia becomes the ruling empire. And King Cyrus decides that some of the Jews may return to their homeland. Specifically, that was clearly seen in Isaiah 44:28, where it says, Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple your foundation shall be laid. 
So the context of the book of Ezra and the events in Ezra tie closely with the book of Nehemiah. And as I mentioned, those two books set the stage for Ezra introduced to Nehemiah himself. When you switch between Ezra, the end of Ezra, and the beginning of Nehemiah, it's kind of like a um, part two of a miniseries or a scene in a movie. The time lapse between the two books is somewhere between 11 and 12 years, and most of the commentators by date references think that it happens somewhere between, between the winter of 485 B.C., I'm sorry, 458 B.C. and 445 B.C. So let's go to the text itself, Nehemiah chapter 1. It says, The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the twentieth year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. That'll be important later. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who keep him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. You see, in the first few verses, we're introduced to Nehemiah, his father, Hakaliah, and a brother, Hanani. And by date references, it's thought that the conversation with Hakaliah was near November, December, 446. And the book continues the same story as I mentioned, started in Ezra, just farther historically along. So based on these dates, it's thought that Nehemiah might have grown up in Babylon, but may not or may have been too young to make a trip with Ezra. Nehemiah was in Susa, as referenced also in Esther, where it's mentioned a number of times, almost 20, and it's listed as a citadel. So a citadel is different some ways in terms of what you think about it as an adjective. It's a, um, it's a protected area 
It has a high elevation usually, protected by walls and terrain, and it's more secure than other locations. And some suggest even that the citadel of Susa might be somewhat different than the actual city itself of the same name since it was the winter escape of Persian kings. So, if you follow along, Nehemiah is in this area, and his perception of his life, as well as his security, is shaped by geographical location and perhaps the luxury that he worked within as far as the king is concerned. It's also interesting to note that the Persians had a robust history of winemaking. So Nehemiah's position as a cupbearer fits well with regional commerce. And from Homer's Iliad, we know a description of how the royal cupbearer served the Zeus council with cups of gold. The position of the cupbearer brings with it a great deal of honor and respect since they're loyal servants who tasted the wine and risked their life for the king. So from reading the text, Hanani has returned from Jerusalem and Judah with news about the exiles. And the news was bad, right? It was horrible. He told Nehemiah, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. And its gates are destroyed by fire. Okay, if you have the wall broken down, that's one thing, and that's bad. If you have the gates destroyed by fire, there's what is left. Ash. A few pieces. There's no tools. There's no materials to rebuild it again. So immediately, Nehemiah, known for bold and decisive action, sat and mourned for days. So one might consider, why was he he so hard hit by this news? What made him emotionally connected to these people? So today, we define empathy as kind of the ability to understand and share feelings with one another. Now, most of the exiles, Nehemiah would not have personally known, yet he had a distraught response. And that lets us know that the connection to the exiles from Nehemiah and the city of Jerusalem was deep. It was a profound feeling. Shift your attention here to us, First Baptist Nixa, where we're going to be visited soon by next few weeks, several missionaries coming, who are going to be talking with us, rejoicing with us, and some of them bringing troubling news. And we have been in receipt of news from missionaries over the years, those suffering from unknown illnesses, um, those that are having problems with the government and are under persecution, at various extents, uncertainty about their family, and we feel and we pray with them in heartfelt response. But as a church, we also praise and worship with the good news that they share with us from a long ways away. So here, shifting back to Nehemiah, we see a glimpse of Nehemiah's spiritual side. He lived at a time that didn't have Facebook or Twitter or Parler or one of the other social media contexts to stay up to the minute with exacting details of people's perceptions. You know, certainly we can surmise that Hanani gave more specific details than what might be recorded here, but Nehemiah references the exiles as remnants. Remnants. It's not, you know, there's nobody left. It's remnants, seeming to suggest that the struggle is not yet finished. And moreover, he notes that the wall is broken down and the gates have been consumed by fire, as I mentioned. So today, 
Let's make a little application. Today, if we consider the events facing our missionary families with government regulation and, and pressure to prevent the spread of this, right, to prevent the spread of the word in all forms that you can possibly imagine, what if they called us with concerns and we responded something akin to, wow, yeah, we'll pray about that. And they really know what that means is that they have been politely rebuffed. And if they're fortunate, it might end up on the next members meeting agenda, right? That's devastating, both to our congregation, our family, as well as our extended family, which are the missionaries. Such would be disheartening to them at best. So in ancient days, the city wall was the first and foremost element of protection, You know, sturdy gates were essential. You know, yeah, they're made of different substances than the walls probably, but you need them to go in and out. They're good for ingress and egress. And the city was exposed to all manner of attack and visits by nefarious scoundrels of some sort who were going to come in. And if that's not bad enough, consider that back in Ezra, excuse me, Ezra 4, verses 7 through 23, the king had previously issued commands to stop the construction. Okay, think about Nehemiah's position, cupbearer to the king, Ezra 4, 7.23, the king previously issued commands. So switch over, if you can, to Ezra 4. We're not going to go through all of those uh, pieces, but we're just going to go through Ezra 4.11, and we'll start there. Ezra 4.11, back one chapter, or one book. This is the copy of the letter that they sent to Artaxerxes, the king, your servants, The men of the province beyond the river send greeting. And now be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. Mm-mm. This is the time where you cue ominous music in a, a system like that, right? Now switch over to verse 17. It says, The king sent an answer to Rahum the commander and Shimshai the scribe and the rest of their associates who live in Samaria and be, in the rest of the province beyond the river. Greeting. And now the letter that you sent to us has been plainly read before me. And I made a decree... And search has been made, and it has been found that this city from old has risen against kings, and that rebellion and sedition have made in it, have been made in it. And mighty kings have been over Jerusalem, who ruled over the whole province beyond the river, to whom tribute, custom, and toll were paid. In other words, yeah, I agree. Therefore, make a decree that these men be made to cease, and that this city Be not rebuilt until a decree is made by me, and take care not to be slack in this matter. Why should damage grow to hurt of the king? Slack. I love that word. Translates from then way back up to now. Would you agree? So, the broken walls were going to take considerable toll on the inhabitants, scoundrels, as I mentioned. If any remnant survive without protection, anarchy and violence and... 'er ne'er-do-wells were going to be traversing this area. 
Now consider the weight of the word shame in Nehemiah verse 1-3. And they said to me, the remnant is there in the province who had survived the exile in great trouble and shame. It's easy to gloss over the word shame. Because shame, when you feel it, when you feel ashamed of something, it covers your daily life. It's, uh, it creeps throughout your day and the associations of other people you may be with. And in areas of poverty and violence, it's like a, a mist or a, a fog or a dust cloud that stifles your emotions and stifles behavior. And I think that Nehemiah has sensed this in the text. Derek Kidner makes a strong case that this is the background to Nehemiah's great concerns. Not only is Jerusalem destroyed and dishonored, realize that Nehemiah is working for the same king, right? This is a catch-22 situation. Quite a conundrum. Nehemiah's concern for the people was profound, yet he was seemingly unable to remedy this on his own. Working for the king, no resources. In later chapters, we will see resolute leadership and command from him that he's most often known for. But because we know today by the Bible, by our experience that prayer works, it should not shock us that the first written record in Nehemiah is that his action was is that he prayed, right? He prayed. Now, I'm sure that in similar circumstances, many of us would experience shock and awe and then consider how to respond, and we might solemnly say something like, well, wow, I guess that's all we can do is to pray, right? You've heard that before. But that's really a poor response for strong Christians because prayer was not Nehemiah's last resort, and likewise, it should be our first resort too. Nehemiah's first activity was to pray, and I think that by the order and context of the prayer, it's clear that his priorities in his life before this time were organized, and they were practiced and properly arranged. J.C. Ryle wrote, I ask whether you pray because a habit of prayer is one of the surest marks of a true Christian. All of the children of God on earth are alike in this respect. From the moment there is any life and reality about their religion, they pray. Just as the first sign of life in an infant was born to the world as an act of breathing. So the first act of men and women when they are born again is praying. This is one of the common marks of all the elect of God. Now you see, many times we get absorbed in our own sphere of problems. It's our own little world. We have things that affect us, the people around us, and it's just our small fear. And we cater to those limited needs. But that's not what's demonstrated here in the text. There's no immediate cry on behalf of Nehemiah that says, please help us. He actually puts things in order first. Nehemiah's prayer recognizes the awesome majesty of God first, and then he submits a prayer of repentance for the people. If you look at verse 5, it says, And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. That's a good way to start, wouldn't you agree? Confirms his faith in God's covenant nature. Let's go on to 6. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night 
for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel. See, in verses 6 and 7, he's praying in an open-handed manner, completely open-handed. He corporately recognizes sin, and he uses the word we, kind of the corporate we, or it is the corporate we. He might not have known all the details, as I said earlier, but he certainly knows the nature of sin, and he can surmise what might have been going on, even if he wasn't specifically there. And then in verses 8 through 10, that's where he prays directly and strongly, reaching back to Deuteronomy and Moses. And he says, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them. Wow. You see, like Moses... Nehemiah was really concerned about how precarious this situation was. And he, uh, in an illustrative standpoint, is standing in the gap between what he's praying for God and for the people. And he includes his own household as well. And then all of a sudden, down in verse 11, it changes and says, O Lord, let your ear be attentive. Okay, so we have... He has addressed God. He has put things in proper order. He has a proper perspective of God. Down in verse 11, he gets down and he says, how can you help me today? Grant success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Today, the word today. How many times do you think he practiced and said this word today? What would you guess? You see, it's remarkable because this section of Scripture shows that he had a veracity and continued prayer life. Most scholars seem to think that Nehemiah was praying in this manner perhaps three to five months. Okay? That's why the word today is significant. Nehemiah has praised this daily for about a quarter of a year, day and night, each time looking for an answer. When? Today. Verse 11. Mercy in the sight of this man. Why do you suppose Nehemiah prayed this way? You know, up to this point in the text, we don't have any idea what his position is. But next he says that very important piece of information, that he's the cupbearer to the king. So recognize in those days, as I mentioned, that the cupbearer was extremely respected and in close confidence of the kingdom. And I'm sure he was in constant need, because after all, if you're the cupbearer and you're tasting you know, wine and making things work for the king, you don't get much vacation time because oddly enough, the king eats and drinks every day, right? So he's there. And it's intriguing that the word for the cupbearer here is the same one used in the story of Joseph in Genesis 42. The word describes more of a butler of sorts, uh, somebody who's choosing and tasting the best wine. Remember, it's a wine capital there. Ultimately, demonstrating with his life that it's not poisoned and right. So that's quite a step beyond the normal cupbearers of today, the sommeliers that are in restaurants. You know, the modern-day position might not be tipped as well if the choice of wine is bad, but you don't have to pay for it with your life, right? So do you see that Nehemiah feels trapped? Heartbroke, he is aware of suffering of the people, knowing that the, his direct employer had a direct hand in stopping the construction, While he was a trusted member of the court, he could not imagine what his next action was going to be. So his action was he prayed. 
direct, repentant-laced prayer for his people, himself, the situation. He knows that genuine, heartfelt repentance and turning from sin are fundamental to this situation. So there's two principles from this. The first one is that Nehemiah was a man of empathy for others. That's a cultivated piece of his life. Here he was living within a life of luxury, certainly as a slave and an an employee, essentially, working in the king's palace, tasting the finest wine from the winemakers. And he still has feeling. He's a trusted and renowned advisor, but he's immediately crushed by the plight of people about 800 miles away, which is a long way in those times. In our modern life, here within this congregation, we're often driven to a life of emotional separateness or individualism. We become distinct in our daily lives. We have busy things that we do. Our chosen lifestyles take us in different directions, yet we too have to be aware and prayerful for everyone, including the abused, uh, adults, children, people with limited access to get around and resources. So let's take a moment today, as we're here in this service, and ask an uncomfortable question. Do we have a developing indifference on our own or coldness towards other people in the congregation? Do we seem somewhat stifled? I include myself in this, obviously. We should all pray that the Holy Spirit would soften our attitudes as well as our actions because creating and maintaining and living in an environment of compassion in the church today can first be recognized when you look at it and you think, I think it was Matt um, Chandler who said that we need to know that we are called to attend church, not just belong to one right? And attending connotes more of an integrated feature of personality. Second, it's critical to see that Nehemiah was a man of decisive and confident action. Regularity and commitment of prayer, I think, is what allowed him to immediately drop into that cycle and start praying for five months. If he had not had day and night prayers and consistent prayer life, it'd be difficult for him to keep it going more than a week, wouldn't you say? Maybe longer since he was... So, structured and righteous and elegant prayer is what he has provided here. So what we need to do is be encouraged by the prayer of Nehemiah. It can be dangerous to turn around into a situation and respond with just emotionalism where we're allowing our feelings to interpret the circumstances and form wrong thoughts about God and and putting feelings before faith. But on the other hand, it's also important that we don't be deadpan with our faith while it's grounded in theology and, and void of any affection, which utterly drains feelings from faith. So it is true that our emotions should not lead our theology, but it's essential to our faith that theology, our experience of the word, leads to a full experience of God. And a full experience of God is being emotionally captured. So that's why the prayer we have here is a model for our spiritual navigation. Nehemiah demonstrates that he has the right view of God in verse 5. You know, O God, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God. And you see, for Nehemiah, there's no obvious and eminent evidence around him that God's going to keep the promises. He just gets bad news. 
Yet through faith, Nehemiah is extolling and remembers that he is is under the care of a covenant-keeping God. The prayer, as I mentioned, also has the right view of us. He's confessing the sins of the people and himself and his family. He didn't know all the specifics of the exiles, but he's certain there's no elevated picture of righteousness on their behalf. And finally, he does paint an accurate picture of the importance of repentance. We're often tempted to slide past repentance, right? Because that's hard. It's much easier to deal with grace and mercy. It's tough to be repentant. And here it's shown as both a description as well as a prescriptive action for us today. So when life is good, sometimes it's hard to see that God is the author and perfecter of all things. You know, we become tempted to think our life and the blessings we are enjoy are just because we're incredibly fabulous, right? We're awesome. So we have to beware if your kids are godly because of your fantastic parenting or your finances just rock because of what you earned and you've achieved over somebody else or your health is superb because you've got a great nutrition plan. You see, if these statements are spot on about how we think about things, our attitudes are kind of hard, and it might be you know, almost impossible for us to walk compassionately with one another. But that's not what's displayed here, would you agree? Nehemiah sees himself and the people as small and almost insignificant. But look at the blessings we have here at First Baptist Nixa and recognize that grace and mercy are provided to us daily. You know, we know that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. But if you're here today and you are feeling convicted of some sin or something else that's going on in your life, seek a deacon or an elder and ask us to walk with you through repentance because that's a lonely time and help strengthen your faith as we move along. So this prayer in Nehemiah has three components. It's got the shape, it's got spontaneity, and it has stamina that's displayed throughout. The shape is that it rightly places God and us in proper perspective. And it's evident that Nehemiah felt covenant love. He felt it. And he, and he was extending that to his people. It, was spontane- it had spontaneity to it. It was a spontaneous and it was an immediate involuntary action almost of Nehemiah. He gets the news, he prays. He didn't have to think about it long. He was already practiced. And he had the stamina. We do pray for others as well as ourselves, but often we don't sustain in our requests to our triune God. Stamina is critical, and Nehemiah's prayer demonstrates for us here. See, you see, prayer, when you think, oh, all we can do is pray. No, that's not it. Prayer is action. Yes, certainly, we'll, we'll see other parts of Nehemiah's personality where he's bold and as leadership and command, but prayer is action, and that's his first response. Our motivation as a congregation, our brothers and sisters in Christ and others, our motivation for them is genuine compassion. We need to have a welcoming community. We have to have good friendship. And I, I, I know the word pouring out uh, is used a lot, but we do need to be expressing ourselves, um, making ourselves available for others because, because God has first rescued us.